that joined us so far. We had a few technical difficulties that I take full responsibility for. But, um, but as people start to join in, I know that I just sent out the link uh, to this uh, live stream. So it's going to take people a, a little bit of time to, uh, to get that and for everybody to uh, get back on. But for those who have joined us already, good morning. And uh, really looking forward to having this time with you. But, you know, we can't uh, help but think every time uh, how much we miss being together. And I know that uh, I already heard from several of you of what a, a difficulty that is. And even uh, some of you trying to think creatively about uh, how we could um, still meet together, even if it were in small numbers. Um, but this is the time that we live in. And uh, these are... Uh, the days that we have to be careful and patient and wait on the Lord and know that in due time uh, we will be able to gather together once again and we just we have to wait um, until we can do that and I know that uh, our hearts long for it. Uh, you will notice that uh, for those of uh, you who joined in for the wedding yesterday I want to say first of all that uh, John and Heidi uh, are off on their way. Things went smoothly. I know that uh, uh, for some who were joining us, the audio was a little bit of an issue. There, and again, uh, there was a lot of effort put into that, but there was some um, with the computer and getting the audio in there. And, I, you know, the, the technical side was explained. Uh, but in either case, uh, I do know the audio was a little bit difficult for some, but still it was really encouraging to them to see so many people who signed on and to be a part of uh, that day. So we're, we're excited uh, for them. Uh, I do want to mention just one other thing before we get started here, and that is uh, a prayer item. Uh, not uh, sure exactly uh, you know, how serious this is, but I do know that uh, with Tim and Michelle, the Malvasos, that they were delivering some meals. They had some kids that are out working, and she came up with a high fever yesterday. And so anyway, he communicated that this morning, and so we want to pray for them. Pray first that... Uh, it would not be uh, the coronavirus, COVID-19, and that the Lord would spare them from that. We, we don't want to think we're beyond uh, contracting it and that we're beyond uh, the consequences of it. We, we certainly are not. And so we want to be cautious and we want to be wise and we want to pray uh, for the Malvasos. So please uh, be sure uh, to do that uh, this morning. And uh, If there's any news with that, if it's, if it's anything more than just uh, the common flu, then uh, we will be sure to, to let you know. Well, before we begin, let's uh, take just a moment to pray together, and then we'll uh, open up God's word and pray with me. Father, thank you for this time, and we do thank you for uh, live streaming and for computers and Wi-Fi and the internet, and um, this is one of the benefits of it, and one of the blessings is that we can still in some way uh, be together and in some measure be together, um, even though physically separate. And so, Father, I do pray that you would bless our time in the Word, that you would encourage us, that you would teach us and instruct us, and that, again, though we're not physically present, that our fellowship with you and knowing that we're uh, doing that together around uh, the same portion of your Word, um, that that would be an encouragement to our hearts. And we do pray that you would uh, use that word uh, even now to sanctify, to renew our minds, and to uh, cause us to increase in our worship. And we are so thankful um, that no matter where we are, your word uh, is always doing its work in us. And we can hide that word in our heart and can never be separated from your presence and from your word. And so, Father, we pray as well for the Malvaso family. We ask that you would um, spare them, or that this would, in fact, not be the coronavirus that Michelle has and that none, no one else in their home would have it. We ask that whatever your will is, that you would be so kind and show them mercy, and that the end of it would be healing and a restoration to full health. And I pray that even in these times to have a high fever like she has, uh, is a cause for concern. So help them to have a peace of heart, a steadfast trust in you that, that would not be anxious, but to wait on you and to lean on you and to trust your will in all things. 
Uh, to that end, Lord, of your glory and our trust in you and our delight in you, and we now turn to your word and we ask you to bless it, and we pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. All right. Well, let's uh, begin by opening up your Bibles to Psalm 139. So open up your Bibles to Psalm 139. As we're coming now to the end of this psalm and the end of our, our study of it, uh, although we won't reach that end entirely this morning, that's going to be next week, uh, simply because of the need to take a little more time on this closing section. Uh, this is a very intense and startling portion of our psalm. In fact, it's striking. It's uh, startling because uh, for many it is uh, unexpected. It's an unexpectedly strong response, actually, of hatred. That's the, the word that is used. Uh, the title of this, uh, these next two messages, in fact, is Holy Hatred. And it would sound like those two things can't go together, but in fact, uh, they can. And I would even say they must. But that requires nuance, and we understand exactly what we mean by that. But it's striking to us initially because it comes on the heels of David's sweet meditations on the nearness of God and the goodness of God and the preciousness of God's thoughts to him. And then, like almost out of nowhere, it seems uh, we are confronted with this hostile reaction to the wicked and to all that is in contradiction to God. And this makes us realize that this is the kind of portion of scripture that many in the Christian church are uncomfortable with and that many who are outside of the church uh, even want to use as some kind of argument against Christianity. And, and that is in large part in terms of at least Christian response to this, these, this portion of scripture and, and, these, uh, and the portions of scripture that it represents is because we have, by and large, and I'm speaking of the, of the church at large, the professing church, have such, well, weak views of God. We have, in fact, in many cases, such low views of God with all of our talk of him and all of our talk of his name and our love for him. Uh, we don't always demonstrate that we understand the true nature of his glory. In fact, many professing Christians have warm feelings about God, but these warm feelings about God are generally predicated on nothing more than the fact that God has warm feelings towards us. And it's like this sort of God loves me, I love him. And, and that certainly has a profound truth at the core of it. But if not thought about and understood deeply, can also be very misleading. And we see that when, when the hard truths of God confront us and they confront our ideas of ourselves or they confront our idea of how the world is first about him and not about us. So they confront our sense of human autonomy and our sense of human importance as the priority of the universe. Or when God's definition of right and wrong comes in conflict to our own, uh, we can become uncomfortable with that God, that kind of God that's presented in Scripture. And this comes out in a, a variety of ways, in a, in a variety of truths about God and us that really confront our sense of our own importance. Let me just give you a, a few. When God's sovereign rule over his creation is shown to be more important and a higher priority to him than human autonomy. In other words, to say that God's will is more important than the protection of man's will, that tends to make people uncomfortable and want to redefine God and somehow that makes him more palatable and more, and more approachable to us and, and more caring and concerned about our human sense of complete freedom. Or we get uncomfortable sometimes when Scripture presents God's glory as a more important and priority than human significance. I shared a several weeks ago about the plane ride where somebody got very upset with me on this plane ride because I said that of God's greatest 
concern in the universe is his own glory. And that completely offended this person who was a professing uh, Christian and actually someone involved in their church. But when Paul says that all things are from him and through him and to him, to him be the glory forever and ever, scripture is unambiguous in that priority of God. Or sometimes people will get offended when scripture presents God's holiness and man's need for holiness as greater importance than our felt needs that we feel comfortable or that we feel blessed or that we feel happy in this world uh, by our enjoyment of it. That God is much more concerned with our holiness and, and to present people with that truth, particularly in understanding how God uses trials and difficulties in our life uh, can be an offense uh, to some who are not starting with a robust view and a profound view of who God is. And it, it related to our passage particularly this morning, the truth of God's judgment against human sin is offensive to some. God's judgment against all, to say that God's judgment against all human rebellion is not only good, but it's right and to be delighted in by his people is to some offensive. It is offensive. And it is at that point of God's judgment against sin that Christians will sometimes want to make excuses for God. They'll want to try to get God off the hook. They'll try to explain away the se severe language that God uses in his upholding his holiness and his justice. They'll try to present him in a way to show that still this judgment is really uh, not contrary to God holding us in highest esteem and, and holding our good and holding man in, in the highest possible uh, position. Or we simply ignore these hard truths altogether. You can think about Christian music and Christian sermons. And how often is the idea of judgment, the reality of sin, the upholding of God's justice made center stage? How much is that and how often is that delighted in? And in fact, it needs to be delighted in because grace cannot be fully understood, of course, apart from understanding the seriousness of sin. And so it's especially this latter part, this, this idea of delighting in God's judgment that we are confronted with here in Psalm 139, verses 19 through 24. But it's there as it is in many places of scripture. And so we have to come face to face with what is expressed here by a righteous king in Israel and as inspired by the Holy Spirit and as recorded in God's word for us. Judgment and God's glorifying himself and the judgment of sin is a part of our worship. Now, as I already mentioned, because of the significance of this, we're going to spend uh, a couple of weeks on it. And this morning, my goal is primarily to set a large context about how Christians are to view the judgment of God, how we are to view within that context what are known as the imprecatory Psalms. I'll come back to that later. And how we are to carry over the truth that is conveyed uh, in this portion of scripture into the reality of the gospel and of the new covenant. Let me begin simply by reading this portion of scripture and then we'll, we'll look at it a bit more broadly. Uh, begin with me, if you will, in verse 19. So I'm going to read Psalm 139, uh, verses 19 through 24 to the end. Verse 19. David prays. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, men of bloodshed, for they speak against you wickedly, and your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with the utmost hatred. They have become my enemies. Search me, O God. And know my heart, 
Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. Again, striking words by David, this righteous king in Israel, in terms of his heart attitude towards the judgment of the wicked. So as I said, I want to begin this morning and really take most of this morning and setting this into a larger context. And so the first topic or the first point that I want to cover is this, a divine judgment and the Christian worldview. Divine judgment and the Christian worldview. How are we to maintain a Christian worldview and delight in God's judgment? And the question itself, of course, is problematic because it indicates that somehow there is a conflict between what it means to understand and embrace God's glory and grace in Christ and to embrace God's work of judgment on the wicked in this world. And that's, that shows how the, the question itself, if someone were to ask that, shows that we haven't yet fully grasped the nature of God and of the gospel. Well, a Christian worldview in, in terms of understanding judgment uh, must begin with the opening chapters of Scripture. In other words, it must begin with Genesis 1 through 3 and specifically with Genesis chapter 3. Put simply, after God created a world in which he declared it was very good, holy and beautiful and harmonious, the entrance of sin is recorded for us in Genesis chapter 3. Sin through our representative, Adam. And this sin, beginning with him and filtering through to everyone who has come from him, introduced mutiny into God's creation. The order of creation in which God had made and provided man with all good things, again, in an environment of holiness, goodness, beauty, harmony, and abundance, became corrupted by sin. And the earth and its inhabitants became a race of rebels. Everyone born is born with a heart of then rebellion against God, his image bearers, no longer living and functioning and desiring to conduct life in a way that brings maximum glory to God and enjoys the maximum blessing of human flourishing and communion with God, instead bore a race that stands in direct opposition to God and would overthrow him were it possible. In a race no longer living under his lordship, but living under rather the authority of darkness under the leader, Satan, who is described as the god of this world. In other words, the earth is corrupted and marred by sin. There's an example of this situation, even though in this passage in Matthew 21, uh, Jesus is directly addressing Israel and Israel's response to their Messiah. But this stands representative, really, of all of mankind to her creator, our creator, God. And in that parable, I'm just going to briefly reference it. You'll remember that, that Jesus gives this example of this landowner who entrusted his vineyard to others. And when the time to receive the fruit of his harvest came, he sent to them servants they killed all of them, humiliated them. Finally, he sent to them the son and they killed him and they threw him out of the garden. They wanted to keep everything for himself. And then Jesus said, what, did, what would this landowner do? And they said he'd bring those wicked people to a wicked end. They understood that the vineyard was his and the rights were that he should receive the produce and the fruit of it. Well, again, that's referring to Israel's response to Christ as their Messiah. But it forms a fitting uh, illustration of the condition of all of mankind who bears God's image, who lives on his creation, and yet does not want to give to God the glory that is due him, but instead rebels and wants to take hold of our sense of our own authority and to live apart from God, and in fact, would kill God if we could. And that was no more clearly displayed than when God appeared in the person of Jesus Christ, God the Son, and that is exactly what man did. 
But that is the condition of the earth. And that's why we're only six chapters into scripture and God destroys everybody with a flood. He wipes out all of humanity. He wipes out all of his image bearers, save Noah and his family because of the reality of human sin. And the human sin, the condition of man's heart, as we've mentioned in the past and you're familiar with, hasn't changed. The only thing that's changed is that God, in order to fulfill his own covenant of redemption, withholds and stays his judgment until he accomplishes all of his saving work. And then he will be patient no longer in one day and again, judge the world, not through water, but through fire. So the Christian worldview is and begins with particularly in light of our understanding of judgment, exactly where Paul began with his explanation of the gospel in Romans chapter one. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. That is the natural condition of man. And so when we think of the judgment of God, we have to begin with understanding that the judgment of God rightly abides on the whole earth and every rebel in it all the time. We should not be surprised at the judgment of God when we see it and when he anticipates it in his word. Instead, we should be surprised that he withholds it as much as he does. But what's even more striking to us and in terms of how, how that filters out in the worldview of God's people is this. We understand that the world is for the glory of God and that at the center of the glory of God is the majesty of his holiness, the beauty of his nature, the glory of his being. And it is right that all that opposes that glory, that all that opposes that righteousness should be met with the most strict justice and swift response. And so we, in fact, do see that. Let me give you an example. In Psalm 96, verses 10 through 13, this is one example here of the way that the righteous respond to the idea of the judgment of God. He says this, uh, he actually, if we go to verse, uh, verse eight, let's begin. Ascribe to the Lord the glory of his name, bring an offering and come into his courts, worship the Lord in holy attire, tremble before him all of the earth, which is his. And then he says in verse 10, say among the nations, the Lord reigns, that's sovereignty, that's, that's full rights and ownership over creation. The Lord reigns. Indeed, the world is firmly established. It will not be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity, with fairness, with righteousness and perfect justice. And then he says this, let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice and let the sea roar and all it contains. Let the field exalt and all that is in it. Then all the trees of the forest will sing for joy before the Lord, for he is coming and he is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in faithfulness. The response of the righteous to this coming judgment of God was worship. The response poetically and metaphorically of all of creation to the judgment that he was going to bring is worship. Why? Because in his judgment, he sets right what has gone wrong. He makes pure and gets rid of what has corrupted all that is good. <coughs> and those who love God and love what is pure and what is holy and what is good rejoice in the removal of it. Rejoice that, in fact, knowing that things will be set right. But some want to argue then and say, well, that's an Old Testament kind of spirituality. And in fact, now that we are Christians and now that Christ has come and grace and truth have been realized in him and, and the law has been done away with. And now the love of God has 
been prioritized as uh, the, the greatest, the greatest uh, way that he relates to mankind. Now we have a Christian spirituality. We, we have sort of a, a more mature spirituality, a, a greater idea than those primitive early ideas of God's people. Now we are the more spiritually advanced. And so we can kind of look at those and disregard them as well. But that, but that was then. Now we're told to love our enemy. Well, we'll, we'll come back to that and, and relate what that means to love our enemy and at the same time to delight in judgment. But let me begin and suggest this, that there is no conflict or incongruity or inconsistency between Psalm 96 and, and uh, the rest of the rejoicing in God's judgment that we see in the Old Testament and what we see in the New Testament. There is complete consistency. As a matter of fact, many of you are aware of this reality. It's been observed many times that, that Jesus spoke more of hell than anyone else and more of hell even than he did of heaven. We learn most of what we know and have those emotive kind of passages and fearful passages about the coming judgment on those who refuse to repent from the lips of him who is incarnate love and the incarnate grace of God. Jesus himself spoke of hell more than any other. In Matthew chapter eight, for example, he says this to the religious nation. He says, the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That was from the lips of Jesus. And matter of fact, he even in the gospel of Luke longed for the day that this judgment would come. He says this in verse 49 of Luke 12. He says, I have come to cast fire upon the earth and how I wish it were already kindled, but I have a baptism to undergo and how distressed I am until it is accomplished. Jesus did not shy away from the reality that judgment was a part of his ministry and he delighted in it. In fact, Scripture makes clear that all judgment has been given to the Son for the purpose, uh, to the Son by the Father for the purpose that all will honor the Son. In John chapter 5, verse 22, not even the Father judges anyone, but listen, he has given all judgment to the Son. He's given it to the Son. Later, he says then that there will be a resurrection of the righteous to life and the resurrection of also the ungodly and the unrighteous to judgment in verse 29, to judgment. In Matthew 7, 23, when he was speaking to the crowds, he says, I will declare to them, those who stand before him on that day and claim some part in him and part of his grace that he'll say you were strangers to it all along. And Jesus says, I will declare to them, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. That's Jesus saying that. And even beyond that or with that, some of the most scathing rebukes in all of scripture, rivaling even what we see by God's prophets sent to warn of judgment in the Old Testament. We have Jesus saying this to religious leaders in Matthew chapter 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut off the kingdom to those you claim to be offering an entrance into it. He says, woe to you, blind guides. Woe to you, hypocrites, you fools, you blind men. Woe to you, whitewashed tombs. Woe to you. Those who appear beautiful on the outside, but inside are full of dead men's bones. In other words, woe is cursed you, damn you. This is again from the word lips of Jesus. He who John had already introduced as being full of grace and truth. In fact, one of the most intense portions in all of scripture comes in John chapter eight, again, from the lips of Jesus as he confronts these leaders of Israel. 
And he says to them, you are of your father, the devil. You want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks of his own nature. He is a liar and the father of lies. I speak the truth. You do not believe me. And then he says, he who is of God, hears the words of God, verse 47. And for this reason, you do not hear them because you are not of God. Again, this is him who came to reveal grace and truth. But what is that? Was that just Jesus still under the old covenant? No, we see the apostle Paul, who's called very often the apostle of love, who is one of the most privileged and mature Christians, the most mature and privileged Christian in, in all of the new covenants. And listen to how he spoke, writing to the churches. In 1 Corinthians 16, verses 21 and 22, he says this. Remember, this is the Apostle Paul. Same one who wrote the love chapter of 1 Corinthians 13. Y'all who joined in yesterday uh, heard it read. He says this. If anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. He is to be damned. He is to be cut off. That's Paul writing to the church writing to the church. He doesn't shy away from it. Listen to what he says in Galatians chapter one, the false teachers who would come in to disrupt the gospel and were leading people astray. He says in Galatians one, verses eight through nine, he says, but if I or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. He is to be damned. If any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you have received, he says again in verse 9, he is to be accursed. That's Paul. That's Paul writing that. Listen to what he says in Galatians chapter 5, verse 12. Speaking again of these, these false teachers who had come in, these Judaizers who had come in, who were, who were teaching that parts of the law were necessary to express our faith and therefore necessary to salvation, namely circumcision. What does Paul say to them? He says, I wish that those who were troubling you would mutilate themselves. They would emasculate themselves. That's harsh. That's harsh language. Listen to what he says one other time and others could be added to this. In 2 Timothy, he says this. In 2 Timothy 4, verse 14, he says, Alexander, the coppersmith, did me much harm. And what he means is that much harm is saying in my ministry of the gospel, he opposed me and he made it difficult. And he was confusing, in essence, the way of righteousness. Paul says this in verse 14, Alexander, the coppersmith, did me much harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. That's pretty strong, pretty strong language. And again, others could be added. And essentially, Paul summarizes the imprecatory Psalms or those passages such as I read out of Psalm 96 and what we read in Psalm 139 in his letter to the Thessalonians. Again, remember, he's writing to the church. He's writing to the church, the church who is suffering, the church who is suffering for the gospel, the church who no doubt desires for many in their city to be saved, even as they were saved. And yet, yet, Paul says this in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. He says in verse 6, he says, for after all, well, actually, let's uh, jump back up to verse 5. He says, this is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment, so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which indeed you are suffering. And he says this in verse six, for after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. 
and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God, to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, or Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among those who have believed for this for our testimony to you was believed. Paul says, look, I'm praying and we're finding hope in that day when God will set all things right. And that setting all things right means that he will bring judgment to the wicked, to those who do not obey the gospel. And who are, in fact, in this case, opposing the gospel and persecuting the people of God. Unless we want to accord to Jesus and to the Apostle Paul some kind of lesser spirituality, we have to come to grips with the fact that the judgment is part of a Christian worldview. It is a part of our worship to God. It gets even more in the book of Revelation. That is, of course, at the very heart of the way that God is encouraging his people. God gave revelation to us as a new covenant document to give us hope, to give us perspective. And what is at the center of that hope and that perspective is an awareness of the judging judgment of God that is coming upon the earth by the hand of Christ and the Father. It says in Revelation chapter 14, in verse 7, I saw another angel, or actually beginning in verse 6, I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven, having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. And he said with a loud voice in verse 7, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and the springs of waters. They're calling for the worship of God. Why? Because his judgment is coming and he's going to set things right. Sounds a lot like Psalm 96. Sounds a lot like Psalm 139 and others. How about chapter 15 in Revelation verses 3 through 4? And they sang a song of Moses, the bondservant of God. And remember the song of Moses? This is, this is the song of Moses, the, the worship of God. For the deliverance of his people, which was with through the destruction of the Egyptians. He says in verse three, and they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations. And who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all the nations will come and worship before you for your righteous acts have been revealed. And then he looked and guess what? There was preparation for the next phase of judgment to come. I'll give you a few more. Revelation 16, five and six. And I heard an angel of the water saying, righteous are you who are and who were, O Holy One, because you judged these things, for they poured out the blood of the saints and the prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. They deserve it. Sounds like Psalm 96 and other psalms. It sounds like David's proclamation. It sounds like Jesus. It sounds like Paul. One more. This is the last one. Revelation 19, 1 through 6. After these things I heard, and this is after the great destruction of Babylon, the great whore who was raised, raised up against God, who killed the saints. He says this, hallelujah. This was the great multitude in heaven, including the redeemed saints and holy angels. In other words, this is holy worship. And they sang, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God because his judgments are true and righteous. For he has judged the great harlot who was corrupting the earth with her immorality. And he has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. And the second time they said, hallelujah, her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and they worshiped God who sits on the throne saying, amen, hallelujah. 
And a voice came from the throne saying, give praise to our God, all you his bondservants, who, you who fear him, the small and the great. And then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude and like the sound of many waters and the sound of mighty peals of thunder saying, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the almighty reigns. God has given worship. He's praised. He's honored because of his judgment on all that corrupts the earth, all that opposes his will, all that defames and will not give him glory. And everybody who is holy worships him for it. He's given glory and he's praised for his righteous deeds and judgment. So the question is, should we as Christians do any less? Should we really be so shocked when we come to these portions of scripture? Should we really be so shocked at David's words, which we're gonna look at more closely next week? The biblical worldview is that the world exists, all of creation exists for God's glory, and it is right that all who do not give him glory are judged. Now too often, again, Christians act embarrassed about God's judgment upon sinners. Almost like we somehow have to make excuses. And again, that just shows how utterly man-centered we've become. And we've so sentimentalized grace and redirected the emphasis on man that we've diminished the majestic holiness of God and the ultimate end of his glory in all that he has made. Creation and redemption are first about God, not about man. And to truly grasp this, I mean, we can confess that. We can, we can say that, but to truly grasp that it is about God, it is not about man, to truly own his glory as supreme and that being the, the greatest end that we could long for and the greatest good to our souls to long for that is central to our right understanding of God's work in Christ and ultimately his judgment. So a Christian worldview sees the judgment of God as what is good, as what is right, as what is praiseworthy, as what is designed for our worship. Now, it's certainly more nuanced than that in the sense that we do long for the salvation of sinners, and we'll get to that part down the road. But we more than anything long that God would be glorified in his universe and by his people. Let's notice one other thing. And this is the only other part we'll cover this morning. How are we to understand imprecatory songs and Christian love? How are we to understand then imprecatory songs and Christian loves? Because they make us come face to face with this reality. Well, first let me ask or answer or ask and then answer in case you were wondering, what are imprecatory songs? What does that mean, imprecatory songs? Well, imprecatory just has the idea of bringing down a curse, a, a judgment. And so essentially they are psalms in which the writer calls down curses and judgment upon the wicked, upon the enemies of God, who are very often also the enemies of the psalmist who is wanting to do God's will on the earth. There's many examples of that in scripture. I certainly am not going to, read all of them, but let me give you uh, at least one to make that clear. One that's often commented on, Psalm 109. Psalm 109, the psalmist talks about uh, the wicked in verse two with the deceitful mouse who had spoken against him with a lying tongue. They surrounded him with words of hatred. They fought against him without cause. And then he says this, in return for my love, they act as my accusers, but I am in prayer. And what is this prayer? Those who have repaid him evil for good, hatred for his love. This is his prayer. Appoint a wicked man over them and let an accuser stand at his right hand. And when he is judged, let him come forth guilty and let his prayer become sin. Let his days be few. Let another take his office, which, by the way, was applied in the New Testament to Judas, who betrayed the Lord. 
Let another man take his office, verse 9, let his children be fatherless and his wife a widow and let his children wander about and beg and let them seek sustenance far from their ruined homes. Let the creditor seize all that he has and let strangers plunder the product of his labor and let there be none to extend loving kindness to him. And he goes on and on and on. He's bringing down again the curses of God upon this enemy of righteousness, this one who is an enemy of God. And again, we should not be ashamed of those passages or embarrassed by them, but we do need to understand them. We need to understand them. But then again, that's where the conflict comes in. How do we, how do we take that and understand that and be consistent with the nature of God in the revelation of the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Well, some struggle with that, even, even great men that otherwise we admire in many ways. I, representative of one way that Christians handle the, that is C.S. Lewis, who handled it wrongly, I should say. C.S. Lewis read those Psalms and, and found such conflict between the gospel of grace and the expression of the psalmist that he called those kind of expressions devilish. They were devilish. He, he thought they were sin. They were expressions of sin. And a matter of fact, he called them, they are indeed devilish, he said in a book on the Psalms. They are profoundly wrong. He thought they were simply sinful expressions of men at the time. Again, as I mentioned earlier, they were a part of a lesser spirituality. But then he tried to bring something noble out of it as he explained these things. And he sought to argue and said, but they're really noble because even though they are sin, even though they are expressions of lesser spirituality, they do in fact show something that has a kind of spiritual dignity. It shows that the psalmists really were so concerned about the glory of God that they could react so strongly, even though their reaction was wrong. As a matter of fact, he says this in one point, if the Jews cursed more bitterly than the pagans, this was, I think, at least in part, because they took right and wrong more seriously. So one argument that he's representative of is that they were sin. They were low spirituality, but they did show a sincere desire for what is right. And so therefore we can learn from them. But that simply will not do. Others try to argue that they are simply a part of the old covenant and God's using them as executors of his justice and grace. And so now no longer do God's people do that. And so we should no longer have the same kind of sentiments. And even worse, some want to argue that there were two views of God, that there were two kinds of presentations of God, one of the old covenant and one of the new covenant. But again, that simply will not do either. By the mere fact of the passages that we read in the New Testament that reflect the imprecatory Psalms and have their own imprecatory call for God's judgment by the fact that the imprecatory Psalms are quoted in the New Testament positively and rightly. How then are we to understand them? Well, let me, let me give just four core elements here, four core elements, and I'll go fairly quickly on these. Four core elements for us understanding the imprecatory Psalms as Christians. And, and so the imprecatory Psalms in terms of our, our Christian profession of the grace of God. And the one first is this. We understand it through a biblical understanding of love, of love, of love. Love is one of the strongest emotions that we have as humans. Love causes a, a mother to run into the face of the great danger without any thought at all when there is the awareness that her child might be in danger. Love causes the greatest of heroic acts, a total forgetfulness of self out of deep concern for another. Love is one of the strongest human emotions that we have. And yet the corollary to love is hate, is hate. True love, a passionate love and an intense love 
hates all that opposes the object of that love, the thing loved. If something is going to harm one you love, your family, it's the easiest illustration, then you hate all that is a threat to them. If you love your husband or wife, you love your children, then you hate those things that are a threat to them and would do them harm. When what is loved is good and holy, then there is a moral beauty in the hatred of what is evil. There, there is a moral beauty in hating those things that are corrupt because of its expression of a love for what is good. The more intense the love, again, the more intense the hatred. As a matter of fact, one person even said this, hate is often the first sign that we care. Hate is often the first sign that we care. If we truly love something, but yet we're nonchalant, uncaring about those things that would threaten them, can we really say that we love that person or that object? So David's words, for example, then in Psalm 139, I hate those who hate you. Your enemies have become my enemies. Slay the wicked. Are not in spite of his love for God, nor Paul's words about God dealing out retribution to those who have persecuted the church are not in spite of his love for God, are not in spite of his love for Christ, are not in spite of his understanding of the great God love that God has shown in Christ, but rather it is because of it. It is because he's grasped that, that he hates all that opposes it and wants it to be destroyed. The intensity of worship and delight as God is matched by the intensity and hatred of all that opposes him. Why does God hate sin as much as he does? Because he loves his own glory. He loves the highest end of what is good and what is beautiful and what is right, which is himself. Nothing could be greater than God. So if God were to love something more than God, then it would be idolatry for God. <laughs> but that can't be. God can't love something more than God and more than himself because he is the highest end of good. He is the most perfect and beautiful and right and holy being. He's the most worthy object of love. And so then he hates all that opposes that. What is good? Second, then, is the idea of justice. Is the idea of justice. Justice establishes and upholds and affirms what is right. Justice holds accountable what is wrong and what is evil. In order for justice to be upheld, there has to be an account for what is unrighteous, for what is unjust. And so when we read the imprecatory Psalms and when we read these statements of judgment by coming judgment by Christ and by the apostle Paul, there is a sense of hope in them. There is a sense of encouragement in them, particularly to those or to those who are believers. Because if evil is allowed to be expressed without consequence, if evil had no ultimate accountability, then we naturally understand that that would be an unjust universe. It would be an unjust world. It would be hopeless. It would be dark. It would be evil. It would be an evil universe that we lived in and not one that was good. But when we know that justice upholds and will uphold good by punishing evil, we rejoice and acknowledge that that is right. That that is right. In this way, then, the imprecatory psalms and the imprecatory statements of Scripture bring a great sense of hope, especially to those who have suffered unjustly. Guess what? Not everybody in this world receives justice. Many receive injustice. Many suffer the consequence of unjust people and unjust governments and unjust decisions and unjust others who want to, who wrongly oppose them. What do you do? If there was no ultimate sense that what is wrong will be set right, that what is unjust will be made accountable to true justice, then there would be no hope in the world. It would be a sense of hopelessness. One caught this well in these words. He said this, none of us wants to see the wicked get away with it. Human justice is very imperfect. Few sinners are apprehended by the police, and some who come to trial are acquitted, though everyone knows their guilt. Throughout the world, the rich exploit the poor. 
and the power, and we are powerless to do anything about it. Psalms of lament call on God to stop injustice and exploitation and press it on. By calling on God to intervene, the psalmist or the one praying the psalms is affirming that God is the utterly fair and all-knowing judge. To those suffering, such laments are a message of hope. God will not let the wicked get away with it forever. Some die never seeing justice on earth, but they die. Those who know the Lord and understand his promises die knowing I may not see it in my lifetime here, but God will hold, uphold what is right. And there's a confidence in that, a sense of hope in that. When we hear those imprecatory statements, we should find in them a sense of delight and security that what is good and right will ultimately prevail and be upheld. Again, though we may never see this in earth, on earth. There's a third reason that we should find comfort in or the, that should give us perspective on God's judgment, his imprecatory statements, and the Christian gospel. And that is the cross itself, of course. In Christ's suffering at the cross, God demonstrated his love while upholding his justice. His love is demonstrated in that the punishment of just wrath against sin was upheld by being placed on another. In Christ's supreme act of loving obedience to the Father, he demonstrated perfect righteousness and love to God and neighbor in bearing the punishment through his suffering for our failure to love God and to love neighbor. This is the profound mystery of the cross. That in the greatest act of love and obedience is the greatest demonstration of suffering for disobedience and hatred toward God. All centered on this one person in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And so then Christians, though, how does that how does that relate to Christians understanding of the love displayed in the cross and these imprecatory statements? Well, in this way. The cross does not eliminate or minimize God's hatred and just wrath against sin. It, in fact, maximizes it. It shows how utterly right it is for God to judge sin. It shows how utterly right it is for God to uphold his justice. It shows how utterly, how utterly God abhors sin and the corrupt nature of man. How guilty we are. So when we think of the idea of judgment in light of the Christian gospel of love, the cross brings all that together and says, this shows how deeply right it is for God to punish sin, to uphold his glory, how deeply right it is for God to uphold justice in order to let his rebel, rebels go free and to be saved. And we say go free, that doesn't mean go free to do their own thing, but freed from the just consequences of their sin, free to love righteousness, free to obey him, free to live in the delights of his promises and his glory. The suffering of the son shows sin's true nature and the rejection of the son's sacrifice shows the true nature of man's sin and rebellion. So while in one sense, the cross magnifies God's love by, and by showing his holy love, upholding his holy justice, by placing it on Christ, it also shows exactly how right it is for him to execute his justice on those who reject him. To those who do not lay hold of his mercy and his grace in Christ. So it's not inconsistent with the gospel. It's perfectly consistent with the gospel for a Christian to want to see justice met on those who would neglect such mercy that Christ displayed on the cross. And that was part of, again, what Paul said to the Thessalonians. He delighted in the judgment on who? Those who do not obey the gospel. Those who don't obey the gospel. It's right that they would be held accountable for that. Even though we would wish that they would be saved, we understand it's right for God to hold them accountable for not if they do not 
receive his salvation. As a matter of fact, one person said this, if we shrink back and, and who put this very succinctly and, and correctly, if we shrink back from the Psalms of God's wrath on the wicked, we have not yet understood what took place at the cross. If we shrink back from expressions of God's wrath on the wicked, we haven't yet understood the cross. To recoil at the thought of God's judgment on sinners is to show that we have not really grasped the judgment that Christ bore on the cross for sinners. Somehow we tend to be more offended or bothered by the idea of hell for rebels than the reality of Christ's suffering on our behalf and the atonement on the cross. We somehow are more concerned and emotionally straught by the suffering of men than we are by the suffering of the sinless Son of God to accomplish redemption for us. So it's not contrary to the gospel of grace. It is absolutely consistent with it. It's even necessary. The fourth, and I'll have to finish it up with here this morning. The fourth key, the core element of understanding the imprecatory nature, the statements of scripture in light of the gospel of grace is this, that there is a key distinction between the righteous hatred expressed in imprecatory statements and expressed by the psalmist, by Jesus, in the epistles, by John. There's an express difference between a, an expression of personal vengeance and a desire for God's just wrath against sin. In other words, what's being expressed is not some kind of hatred for personal wrongs done to self, but rather a hatred for those wrongs done against God. In those expressions, particularly in the Psalms that we'll look out with David, there's not David saying, I'm going to run out to these enemies. He's actually calling on God to do that to his enemies. This is not a personal vengeance. It is a desire to see God uphold his own honor and his own glory. Let me give you just one example of that. One really succinct and core example of that in Romans chapter 12. And he, and he begins this section in verse 14 to say, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice, he says, with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. But then he says this in verse 17, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. And so that means even as believers who long for that day when the glory of God will be displayed and is upholding his justice, in the meantime, are patient to wait for that day and instead rather receive without retribution the injustice of man. Because we know that that's God's battle. That's God's righteousness. God will uphold the glory of his name in due time. He says this though in Romans 12. Respect what is right, verse 17, in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, your own personal revenge. They offended me. I'm going to get back at them. No, no, no. That would be exactly the opposite. He says this, beloved, leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, that is the Lord's. I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heat burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. How can we do that? Because we know that God will uphold ultimately his own honor. He will bring his own just recompense against the sin, against him and the sin directed at God's people because they represent God on the earth. And so in reality, it is understanding this judgment that helps Christian to manifest that kind of patient, trusting love to receive the injustice of men without responding. Why? Because we know that God will bring it. It is because of the cross that Christians can rejoice and say, yes, God's judgment is right for those who reject such love and such grace, even though we long that they would come to understand. It's not inconsistent. 
The idea of the Christian's longing for judgment is not consistent with the gospel. It is, in fact, at the very heart of it. It's the very heart of it. It is what gives the gospel its weight, what gives the gospel its substance, what gives the gospel its urgency. We long for men to know God's grace, but we long for God to be exalted, whether that be in salvation or otherwise. And knowing that it will be otherwise in God's own timing and God's way helps us to patiently endure the suffering that God has ordained for his people here until that great day comes. It will be set right. It will be made right. Injustice will not be the last word, but righteousness will be the last word by God's doing, by God's bringing about, by God's establishing his kingdom, by the return of Christ. And that is part of the hope, isn't it, of believers? That was part of the hope of First Peter, that God will establish his people. God will bring it about in his own time. God will do what is right. So therefore, we are to keep our behavior excellent. We are to live patiently until that time that God does bring it about. So as we take these thoughts, and some will expand on as we come into Psalm 139, we understand that we're not ashamed of the judgment of God. We need to loudly declare it. We should not be ashamed to pray for God's opposition to the wicked in the world. While at the same time we hope that they would be saved, we would hope rather that their wicked deeds would be stopped as well. And we need to pray for them in the precatory Psalms and those statements. Well, we'll pick it up here uh, next week. For now, pray with me. And then um, we'll end our time together for today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these words of scripture. They are indeed uh, confronting to us in our human pride and our human sense of significance as being the greatest factor in your universe. But in fact, it's not that way at all. You are the end of all that you've created. Your glory is the end of all of your redeeming purposes in Christ. Christ's glory is the, the center of the affections of your people. And as much as we, as redeemed sinners, understand that we deserve the judgment of God, your judgment, just as much as anyone, as much as we are humbled by your sovereign grace in our life that have rescued us through nothing in ourselves, but only by your good purposes, as much as we long, even as Paul who wept for his brethren, even as Jesus who wept over Jerusalem, as much as we long for people to be saved, we also long above that, that righteousness would be established on the earth. And there is a certain tension there, but really there's not. Because at the center of all of these realities is your holiness, is your glory. And that's what we long to see put on display. And that is, in fact, what will be put on display. O Christ, when you return and in that great day when we're with you in a new heavens and a new earth and your glory fills everything, all of creation, the new creation forever and ever. And only righteousness will ever be present there. Help us to think clearly about these things. And we pray them. And Lord, I pray that any who hear this message would, in fact, who are outside of you in your saving graces, would consider these things and come to you even this day. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.